Hello, dear listeners, and welcome to another episode of Business Line Podcast. I am your host, T.R. Vivek. In a low-income country of India's geographical and population size, you can find a socio-economic crisis anywhere you look, be it farms, factories, schools, cities, or villages. While the government is the primary actor with pretty much all power to address these challenges, how can people on the outside, especially those who are high achievers from the private sector, help make a dent? Ashish Dhawan is one of those trying to explore if there is indeed another way to fast-track solutions to big problems and at scale. Ashish is one of the pioneers of Indian venture capital. In 1999, he co-founded Chrysalis Capital, now called ChrisCap, that was an early investor in many young companies that are now champion firms. Ten years ago, he left his full-time role at Chris Cap and started the Central Square Foundation, or CSF, a philanthropic organization that pursues outcomes-driven innovation to reform India's primary education. He's also the founding member of Ashoka University, a non-profit university that aims to offer uh, Ivy League quality undergraduate programs in India. By any measure, India's primary education system is a mess. More than 260 million children go to some 1.5 million schools across the country. Almost 97% children between 6 and 14 have access to some form of schooling, yet the level of learning is alarmingly low. Nearly 70% of the kids at class 3 do not even have basic reading or arithmetic skills, and the learning gap only widens faster thereafter. CSF is attempting to deliver a comprehensive pedagogical solution backed by key systemic reforms working in tandem with various state governments. Ashish joins us today to talk about his transition from a successful investor to a full-time philanthropist, staking his wealth and entrepreneurial zeal into taking on some of India's big problems head-on. Welcome to BL Podcast, Ashish. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Um, Ashish, let me begin by asking you what motivated you to chuck up the world of profitable private equity investments into philanthropy? So I'd obviously been thinking about it for a long time. And there were things from the past that influenced me deeply. You know, it started at a young age. My maternal uh, grandfather had actually built uh, the Lahore Montessori School back in Lahore before he moved to Delhi. And he was very committed to education. He had a business in real estate, but education was run on a no, no profit, no gain, or no, no loss basis. So, you know, just seeing what he did with education, particularly with low-income, middle-income kids, uh, left an influence on me. Uh, my dad had a small philanthropic streak in terms of just giving away things to people who who needed them. He was a professional otherwise. And then, to be honest, when I went to the U.S. for college um, is when I started to see that some of the brightest kids were graduating and going to work for nonprofits or uh, clerking for a Supreme Court judge. But, you know, there was a spirit of public service. It wasn't all about everybody wants to go to Wall Street and make money. And I think that left a mark on me because at least growing up in, in India in school, our only aspiration was to get, you know, the best job, which meant the highest paying job, you know, coming out. Um, and then later, you know, I read Benjamin Franklin's autobiography, and that influenced me also because I think the man had multiple careers, uh, including a career of public service. And so this idea sort of got into my head that, 
you know, when I was in business school at Harvard, that at age 30, I wanted to be an entrepreneur. I, I liked the investing business, so in the investing business. But somewhere in my mid-40s, I'd like to sort of transition more into um, doing public service, uh, you know, working in the social sector, you know, et cetera. So, I, you know, even though it's a decade ago that I made the transition, uh, there are deep influences from earlier. And for me, it was sort of an all or nothing thing. Of course, a lot of people stay with their corporate career and they are giving on the side. They set up a foundation. They're partially involved with it. And that's a good model. Many people follow it. For me, I chose to make it like a second career. If I said I'm going to do it, it's not just about giving away money, but it's really bringing the entrepreneurial energy, being deep into it, reading the books, meeting the people, getting into the field, really making it a, you know, a longer career, frankly, than my first one, because I was only 43 when I made the transition into the social sector. So, so that's a little bit of the background as to why I chose to make the, the switch. Was it, was it in a way uh, a, a midlife crisis that uh, many people experience when they step into 40s? Not about really, thinking not, more about the world outside rather than about your own career and personal success? Not really. You know, I mean, to be honest, I think the beauty of investing is when you fall in love with it, you fall in love with it forever. You know, I mean, you've seen people like Buffett who are 90 plus who are still tap dancing to work mm -hmm. uh, every day. Because unlike a, an operating job, it's hard to get bored in investing. You know, things keep changing. The world keeps evolving. New industries emerge. Uh, you have a wider landscape. You look at what's happening globally. So the intellectual stimulation was always there. Uh, frankly, I had withdrawal symptoms leaving mm -hmm. the investing business. It's hard right. to get that, uh, you know, that bug out of you, as it were. Mm -hmm. um, for me, I think it was more, you know, I had made a decision earlier. And uh, I knew my most productive years, I think you're most productive in your 40s and 50s. I mean, you can be very productive in your 30s, but for me, at least, I felt now I had experience under my belt. Um, and, you know, I would be able to get a lot done, you know, in the next 20 years ahead. And so it was the right time to make the transition versus waiting till I was 60 years old when I wouldn't have as much energy. And then it would be more about sort of cutting a check uh, type of philanthropy. How would you describe uh, uh, Settle Square Foundation and how, uh, how is your model of philanthropy different from, say, a typical CSR initiative of a large company? So, you know, with Central Square Foundation, uh, we started this a decade ago. We just completed 10 years. Uh, idea always from the outset was to work on system reform, right? That we are not here to run a program on the side, but really to see if we can help the government. Uh, improve the quality of education. Now, India has made tremendous strides as far as massification of education is concerned. You know, enrollment rates are quite high. We've solved some of the access issues, but learning outcomes are still very, very poor. So I think a typical CSR initiative um, is very programmatic. It's focused on, let me find a good NGO, let me find a good program and support that program for the next three years. I think CSF's model is a little bit different, which is, we say, look, if you look at the whole systemic problem, government spends about 7 lakh crore on education, out of which 5 lakh crore is on school education. Private citizens are paying another 7, 8 lakh crore out of pocket for education. So we're spending a lot. We're spending, you know, 5.5% of GDP on education. There are 
tens of thousands of NGOs who've been working on education for the last 20, 30, 40 years. And yet in the last 15 years, if you look at the ASER data, we have flatlined. We have not improved learning outcome. So we look at it a little bit strategically, I would say, to say, if you had to think about this complex problem, you know, and if you have philanthropy, which is a drop in the bucket compared to what government spends, the resources government has, what would you really work on? And so we said, you know, the things, one is you have to be really strategic. You have to find the Archimedes lever. You can't be doing everything. So I think the role of philanthropy is, one is to fund innovation because government is a behemoth. Yeah, you know, it will not necessarily innovate. It's civil society, it's the NGO sector that will innovate. You know, some teacher who's found a new method of how to teach mathematics, some NGO that's figured out that structured pedagogy works better and they've implemented it and shown that it could work. Somebody who's done a brilliant job with formative assessment, somebody who's done a great job with teacher capacity building. So new innovative approach, it could be ed tech, right? Second is evidence building. So it's not just the innovation, it's actually to show what works, what doesn't work. Because right? we only want to scale what works. Third is policy advocacy. Once you know what works, you advocate for what is most important. So for instance, at CSF, we understood very clearly that foundational literacy and numeracy was the most important thing. Because as you said, if learning is breaking down early, if 70% of the children in class three can't read second grade texts, we know that their learning will flatline thereafter. Their learning trajectory will plateau. And the only way to address it, if you have a leaky pipe, you have to go upstream to fix it, right? So we said, what we need to advocate for and build the surround sound around is foundational literacy. So we literally coined, you know, FLN, FLN, FLN. We kept saying it again and again, met politicians, bureaucrats, spoke with the whole sector. The sector understood it instinctively, but rallied the sector, built the ecosystem, and, you know, eventually the new education policy has called this out, that it's the number one priority in school education. Eventually, our prime minister put this into mission mode through the Nipun Bharat mission. So I think policy advocacy is critical because from the outside, you know, this is something one can push, not just CSF, but the whole ecosystem pushed for this. And then the fourth part is what I call policy implementation. You know, government, when it says, okay, even when something is in mission mode, it often wants outside actors to come and work with it to help implement. And that's where we say, you know, working at the state level is critical because that's where we can, and that's where system reform comes in. And the principle of system reform is, as opposed to it being our program, it's the system's program, it's their reform, their chief minister, all credit to them. And we can come in as behind the scenes players to work on whether it's, project management, technical support, funding the NGOs who can do some of this systemic work that will help build the capacity, you know, that kind of stuff. So it's really, it's born out of what I believe is really the role of philanthropy, which is to work on innovation, evidence building, policy advocacy, and policy implementation. And that's the way you can get scale, sustainability, and impact. How, how did you pick education? Uh, as I mentioned, you know, there is a crisis anywhere uh, you turn in India. Um, what made you decide uh, on, on uh, intervening in this sector? So I think for any philanthropist it's, or any social sector person, obviously passion is very critical. So you have to feel deeply for the cause, right? And for many of us where education sort of made us, it's 
you know, I, I was well educated and I know the, the payback of a good education is tremendous. So it was, I felt very deeply about it. I had also gone, you know, when I was in my private equity career, I used to give small amounts of money here and then. I had gone into the field to see what a crisis we had in education. So, you know, even the intellectual side of me, uh, beyond the personal experience said that this is something that's very critical. It's something we need to solve, you know, in the next 15, 20 years. Otherwise we're going to be stuck in middle income track. You know, India will stagnate at some point. We don't have the human capital. And I also believe that education is very foundational. You know, if you can improve educational, you improve, if you educate the girl child and the woman is more educated, you probably have better health outcomes. You also have women getting married later, better societal outcomes. You know, some of the ills we have in our society, I think once you're educated, uh, I'm not saying they all go away, but they start to dampen. And education, is, so it, it helps with not just economic improvement or economic transformation, but also with societal transformation. Um, and the beauty of education is intergenerational. You know, once you get someone through to graduate from school, the chance that their child will not complete school is de minimis. It's intergenerational, right? So for all those reasons, we thought that it was critical to focus. And, you know, timing is everything. You know, India was at a stage where, you know, we're going from lower middle income. We had just come out of being a poor country to a low middle income. My own belief is that the next 20 years is when if we don't get our skills right, because the next journey you have to traverse is all about human capital. You know, earlier it's all about factor, you know, basic factor inputs. You're so inefficient. Productivity improves. You make investments, etc. But in the coming phase, you know, by 2035, if we don't have much better human capital, India will stagnate. So it's for that reason as well that we believe it's it's absolutely critical and imperative and, and timely. Right. Um, Ashish, uh, give us a sense of how do you work uh, within the system and uh, how do you measure outcomes? What, yeah. uh, what does success look for you? Yeah. So I'll give you an, a, a, one example. Right. We work in 12 states. I'll, I'll pick one of them. It's just because it's uh, representative, but all other states are doing good work. So Uttar Pradesh, for instance. Right. We'd been talking about the idea of foundational literacy and numeracy. The bureaucrats were very interested. They said the chief minister also was interested in doing something in basic education. They'd already been doing some work in terms of improving infrastructure in government schools. After we had some conversations, the government decided to launch a mission Prerna, uh, which is about improving basic literacy and numeracy. We worked with the department to, to define the goals early on. Right? And we said... Let's make the goals very simple so that any parent can understand what they are. So for instance, in class two, we said, whilst we know that reading with comprehension is the goal at the end of the day, at the end of class three, we said oral reading fluency, how many correct words a child can read per minute is a very good predictor eventually of reading with comprehension because it builds automaticity. So we picked that indicator and we agreed with the state that 25 words per minute is a good target for class two. Similarly, we said basic addition and subtraction, two digit addition and subtraction, so you understand carryover, is a good target for class two. 
And that's the main objective. Of course, there are many other objectives, but that's the main objective. So we define the learning outcome framework, which the state learned, which is Pradna uh, uh, Tulikan. And then after that, uh, the chief minister launched the goals on March 5th of 2020, just before COVID, the lockdown. And, uh, and basically every teacher, every parent now knows, you know, what the goals are. Thereafter, what we worked with the state on, and this is not just us, we pulled in a, a literacy partner, uh, a very good organization called Learning Language Foundation and a numeracy partner. Another very old uh, NGO that has done a lot of work in numeracy, Vikram Shira. And basically they have worked closely with the SERP to redo some of the teaching learning material. So more structured, you know, daily lesson plans for teachers, improving the workbook, you know, a math kit that you go into the classroom, reader series, so you have reading material level one, two, three books for children, the posters in the classroom, so the teaching learning material. Second is on building teacher capacity. So through these NGOs we work on the teacher development. Third is we said we need a middle management layer, basically coaches who go into the classroom. And so the state uh, recruited 4,400 academic resource persons from the teacher population, some of the more motivated ones. And these people go and visit schools once a month. And the idea was we've now developed an app so that they can observe the classroom and they can do a dipstick assessment of three children. Mm -hmm. Then the monitoring framework, you know, how do you collect data? How do you pull it together? What level, how frequently do you review it at the block level, district level, you know, et cetera. So we basically have a, a five pillar model, which is around, you know, defining the goals and, and, and communicating it broadly. Second is teaching learning material, building the capacity within the system, middle management teachers. Fourth is the data and the accountability, the monitoring. And fifth is community. You know, how do you connect with community, home learning, you know, all of that. And then we work with the state on that. It's all the state's program. All the material is the state's. CSF needs no credit. None of the other NGOs need any credit. It's the state. So the decision maker is the minister, the secretary, the concerned official, the SCRT director in the state. But we have several people working you know, inside the department, working with the SCRT. And so it's our goal is how do we make Mission Prerna successful? How do we ensure that Uttar Pradesh achieves their goal of in class two of children reading, the highest possible percentage of children reading at 25 words per minute? And then we have goals for class three, four, et cetera. So that's the way we work you know, with state governments. It's really helping the state government crystallize its own you know, mission, helping them launch it, and then working with them for at least five years, hopefully 10 years, if they want us to, in ensuring that that mission then delivers results you know, on the ground. And every year, year on year, you know, the data will be collected. They'll do a sample assessment. There'll be census assessments. There'll be formative assessments. You'll get data to see. There'll be third-party folks like Asar who will evaluate also. So you'll get a sense of whether the system is improving or not. Right. Ashish, how expensive are these interventions? And uh, what is the size of the corpus that uh, CSF uh, has behind uh, these initiatives? Yeah. So, uh, very good question. Actually, we believe in, as I said earlier, the I'm Archimedes Lieber. You know, how do you, what is the most important thing to work on? And with limited resources, because government is really has the major resources, 
how do we work in partnership with them? Because really it's their program, it's they're spending the money. So we would never, like in a typical NGO program, they may say, we will print the material and we'll have the printing costs, we'll pay for it. We tell the state, you pay for everything because it's their workbook, it's their teaching learning guide. So it takes longer, but it's all the money is borne by the state. Our resources are really the technical people. So for instance, we have a curriculum team, we have a measurement and evaluation team, a, a team that works with states, we have project management units in each state. And then we fund some of these NGOs to do some of the technical work, the capacity building, et cetera. So all told, CSF has a budget of 65 crore per year. Uh, and uh, we've been in that range of about 60 to 70 crore for the last couple of years. And with that budget, we're able to work with you know, uh, 12 state governments. It varies a little bit, each state program. The UP program is the, is the most expensive. I think CSF's budget would be maybe eight or nine crore. Okay. Uh, and then in some other states, it's a it's a smaller budget. You know? And do these uh, typically uh, start off as pilot projects with a small set of schools in a district or a couple of districts? Uh, how are these scaled up? It's a very good question. So actually, we are typically working with nonprofit partners. So my belief is a lot of the pilots in India have been done. You know, Pratham, uh, Room to Read, uh, LLF. Many of these have shown stunning results already on the ground at the level of a block, et cetera. So we don't need to do block pilots. We, have, we are working on the state program to start with, right? From the get-go. So whatever we do, we'll roll out statewide. Now, having said that, you can't learn statewide because we have limited resources also, right? So we will say Madhya Pradesh, right? It's called Mission Ankur, the program, project. Now there we put resources. So we have about 20 people on the ground. Right. And those 20 people, we concentrate in three districts. We call them with the state innovation districts. So all the learning about the program, the new teaching learning material, the capacity building, are the coaches being effective? Is data being collected properly? All of that you're seeing in real time. You know, you can do action research because you're close to the ground. And those innovation districts are the ones providing feedback to the state program. Uh, so, for instance, recently our team went and they found, for instance, the person who'd been trained, this was in UP, not in MP, the middle management person, they're supposed to do an observation of the teacher, right, a structured observation, and that a lot of it wasn't being done properly, you know, they were skipping some stuff, or the dipstick assessment, often they were writing the answer on the board, and, now how do you fix this problem? So, because you were going on the ground and observing it regularly, you then say, okay, it's, this is a shortcut. It's not that they have bad intent. Now, how do we work with the state to actually make this happen better? So that, you know, as the, the program itself. So it's, the idea is it's not a district program or a block program. It's a statewide program. The, the district is really, we, we create these innovation districts where the idea is to get learning so you can iterate the program as you go ahead. You may say, you know, this formative assessment not working, we're seeing the teachers, for instance, when they're rolling it out, they're not finding it to be impactful. Or this remedial, remediation strategy is not working. And then we can also build stronger evidence in those districts as well. So we get a third party to do, uh, at our cost, not at the state cost, to do a baseline, midline, and endline in those districts in particular. 
Ashish, what was the uh, impact of COVID? Was it was it utterly devastating uh, uh, for uh, formative education uh, in in the states that you work with? Uh, and did it make any difference to the kind of interventions that you made? Yeah, look, uh, COVID is a has caused permanent damage, I would say, for a cohort of children, because for two years they've been locked out of school. I think many of us would have liked to see kids go back to school sooner. Uh, most countries in the world, you know, kids were back in school either in 2020 or early 21. And unfortunately, India has taken too long. You know, I think we all understand the, the, that there are risks in sending children back to India. But I, I think if you do the cost-benefit analysis, right, what are we losing out? I think that people are not looking at the opportunity cost which is the damage to children, you know, because they'll go to the next grade, but already kids are falling behind. Now imagine how far behind they are. So yes, for sure. What are we doing differently as a result? Look, every, there's a silver lining to every cloud. What happened during COVID is um, a lot of states rolled out home learning programs, whether it's through text messaging, WhatsApp, through sending printed material to the home, that the parent would do with the child, sometimes even the teacher with going into the community, etc. Earlier, if you look at it, unlike the Anganwadi workers who go into the community, teachers were not as connected with the community. Kids come to them in the classroom, they don't really go to the community. What I was saying is one of the silver linings of this whole, I mean, whilst it's been a disaster, the whole COVID thing, is that home learning got institutionalized. You know, the idea that we need to send worksheets for kids to do at home or text message to the parents so parent can do an activity or a, uh, with their child or through WhatsApp, I think that has gotten, and now my sense is that will stay. So we have a deeper connect with the parent. Uh, we have a way to do it through WhatsApp, through text messaging. And I think that will remain afterwards. And that's important because earlier the school system was not as connected to the parent. So that's one benefit. I think a second benefit is that it gave states the time a little bit to relook at their curriculum, relook at the the do they have the right middle management layer to provide the coaching, the feedback. You know, I mentioned in UP they recruited 4,400 people. Mm-hmm. So normally, when you're just in running mode, you know, you don't have the chance to do that or to redo all the teaching learning material. Normally, you're so busy, you know, you don't have the chance to to do that. So I think it's given states the chance also to step back a little bit and be prepared to really do this foundational literacy and numeracy mission properly. Because mm-hmm. Nippon Bharat was announced in the middle of this COVID thing. If we had to, in three months, roll it out, to be honest, states would have been struggling. Mm-hmm. They've had, in a way, a year, uh, over a year, to prepare for this. And I think that will make the program stronger. It doesn't doesn't uh, the institutionalization of home learning that you spoke about uh, doesn't it uh, require say uh, at, at the fundamental level the ownership of a smartphone uh, and how uh, how how much smartphone penetration you know uh, do we have in the rural areas of UP for instance and even if there is a smartphone uh, in the household uh, are parents capable enough of uh, sort of uh, participate in the learning with children? Yeah. So I think the good thing COVID showed us is that parents are willing to participate in learning with the child. 
Having said that, there are serious access issues, like you pointed out, because whilst uh, a year ago, WhatsApp penetration in rural India was 62%, and right now it's probably in the high 60s, is my sense. The phone is often with um, the father in the household. And so the father comes back from work and maybe the kid is asleep by then, so the child may not get access to the phone. So access could still be a problem, even though in the household there's one phone or sometimes two phones. So I don't think we can only rely on WhatsApp. I mean, text messaging, WhatsApp, sending actual material to the home, the teacher, you know, going into the community, meeting the parents, asking them to get more involved in education, doing a learning mela in the community. So when I say community engagement, it's, it's not just about WhatsApp. It's a sort of more holistic approach to actually involving the community, involving the parent. My point is that pre-COVID, we often, the teacher didn't even have the mobile number of the parent. Yeah. I think COVID has forced you at least to have a database of the parent's mobile numbers, to be in touch with them regularly, to reinforce that the parent needs to get involved with the child's education, even if it's for five minutes, 10 minutes a day, even if it means to review whether the child has done the worksheet or not. So I think those things make a big difference because, you know, all studies show that almost more than half the effects, so there's a very old study, a Coleman study, that shows about 60% of the impact in terms of learning is due to household effects and about 40% is school effects. Now, the purpose of school is to solve for household effects, but it's so much more powerful if the parent can even play a small role. Yeah. Have you been able to measure the impact that COVID has had? I think we have not, but there are studies that have been, Azim Premji University put out a study. There are others who have put out studies. And I think it shows that there's been about uh, somewhere around an eight, nine month learning loss. Mm -hmm. uh, let's say six to 12 month learning loss in children. That's the net net. COVID seems to be a godsend for uh, uh, many of the edtech companies that have been able to uh, raise money at huge valuations. Um, do you see, uh, since, since you work in rural areas, what is the role of technology that you see uh, and, and the use of edtech that you spoke about? How is it different from uh, the typical Baiju's or other brands uh, of, of commercial edtech? So I think a few things. One is that, um, as we said, that access is still an issue. So right now, I think for what we call India 3, which is really the, the bottom 50, 60, 70% of India, you know, we have to really view this as a 5-10 year journey. Mm -hmm. Because penetration will keep improving, access will keep improving, you know, etc. Second is the the content needs to be different. It has to be in the vernacular. It has to be more bite-sized. Um, obviously, low bandwidth because parents don't, are not going to spend. So high, highly engineered videos and all may not work in this uh, context. The third is, what we found is like, unlike Baiju's where the parent downloads an app, right? Or, and sometimes the kid has a dedicated device. Uh, here, um, it's really going to be the parent, particularly for younger children, who controls the device. There's no separate device for the child. Mm -hmm. And the medium to stay in touch with the parent is WhatsApp or text message. Uh, these parents don't download a lot of apps on their phone. And they don't, even if they do, they don't stay with those apps. They're not used to going back to an app. 
But they are on, if they're on WhatsApp, then they're on WhatsApp 50 times a day. If they're on text message, then they're on text message 50 times a day. So one way to reach them is to integrate. It's like what in China, you know, you integrate a lot of services into WeChat, is to integrate a lot of this. And we have actually uh, worked with a couple of organizations. We incubated an organization called Rocket Learn that has done this, that's uh, built a bot and uh, actually is working in UP and in Haryana and Chandigarh and Maharashtra with ECE and school education. And another one uh, called Convigenius that's working in about eight, 10 states. Uh, and they were the state's partner during COVID for this distance learning. Uh, and they have uh, now got, they've developed an assessment bot where they could assess children on a weekly basis. And now we've been working with them to build the learning content as well, in addition to the assessment bot. So I think there are some interesting solutions like this for uh, rural India. It's still early. I think some internal studies have been done that shows it improves parent engagement or involvement with the child's learning. And it also helps improve certain basic skills. You can remediate because you can figure out you can where a child's learning is breaking down. And you can. But in terms of formal studies, I think it's the next year or two. So we're working with both these organizations to do RCTs. So I think in the next year or two, we'll get stronger evidence. And I think this stuff will be ready for prime time in the next three to five years, because I, I believe that device penetration will be completely ubiquitous, you know, much like in China, you know, in the next three. So a lot of experimentation needs to be done in the next two, three years so that the funnel, there's a lot of drop off in the funnel between either parent doesn't have the smartphone or this thing to even if they have it, why are they not, you know, uh, using it? Uh, to are they a power user or not? Are they using it regularly or not? Um, so managing that funnel and improving it, these organizations are working on. So I think that's those are some of the, the things. But there are many other nuances, uh, you know, in this in terms of making it work for. Uh, but I think the key is that parental engagement is key. Sometimes even introducing a teacher into these WhatsApp groups because coming from a teacher, even though it's a bot that sends the learning content. It's very powerful. And uh, building that community, you know, where it's not just a one-way thing, but it's a two-way thing. You're sending something back. You can see what others have sent. Um, I think that uh, is very, very powerful. Right. Uh, how has it been working alongside the sort of billion-footed beast called the state and bureaucracy? I think by and large, positive. Um, I think it is, obviously, it's a, such a big system. Change doesn't happen very quickly. And education also is, I think, one of the most complex sectors. You know? It's a very complex production function. Right? So it's, uh, but I would say they've been very open to, I think, thanks to the mission. The mission, has, I think, has uh, changed the, you know, often we worry that it's very dependent on a bureaucratic leader. IS officer comes in, they're very excited, or some chief minister is very excited. But these programs run three years, four years, then people move on and it fizzles up. I think this time around, and so we always, what I call pushing water uphill. The person leaves, the water comes crashing back down. I think this time around, the changes, because it's in a mission, you know, there's a demand side and there's money as well, there's budget available. So there's no excuse on behalf of the states. So we see a new energy, the state level, 
And I think states have understood that basic literacy is where they need to focus. You know, if they can show improvement here, class one, two, and three, it'll really set their children up for success. They've become much more focused on outcomes. So all these states have defined learning objectives. Uh, they've launched goals and targets. Um, and they've generally been quite methodical in terms of their approach. Now, having said that, at the end of the day, all of this will make no difference if the classroom transaction doesn't change. And you can have a great data system, you can change the teaching learning material, you can do capacity building. But if that same teacher goes back to the classroom and does exactly what he or she did a year ago, five years ago, there'll be zero change, right? So I think a lot of it is also around behavior change, you know, change management, behavior change. How do we get the teachers on our side? And how do we get this, make it exciting for the teachers? that the new uh, you know, lesson plans, for instance, should be designed in a way with inputs, focus groups, involve the teachers so that it's really created by the teachers for the teachers. Because our, our biggest worry is I think the state bureaucracy may be excited because it's a mission, et cetera. But when it hits the ground, you know, how do you get behavior to change? Uh, and, and then how do you genuinely get the community to be more engaged? Uh, in India, because to be honest, the community hasn't been as engaged, you know, in the past. So those are, I would say, a couple of the challenges. It's less in terms of state bureaucracy. It's more in terms of figuring out, you know, how one can drive this behavior change aspect. And it's across a very large number of agents, you know. In some of these states, you have half a million teachers in the larger states. It's, it's like a TCS, right? Yeah. Imagine yeah. A TCS now has 600,000 employees where you're really trying to do behavior change at scale and get them to adopt new methods, recognize that there are certain goals and drive towards And that too in a public system where you have a job for life. Mm -hmm. So right. that's, that's really the challenge you know, at, a, at a state level. It's been uh, 10 years since you started CSF. Uh, what are the other big challenges that you're seeking to solve for? Uh, or uh, are you going to be focused only on education? Yeah, so I think as I mentioned to you, my first love was education. Um, and when I quit 10 years ago, I focused only on Ashoka University and Central Square Foundation. So education related uh, initiatives. In the, I think through CSF particularly, I learned a lot. And I said, you know, there may be a, a blueprint of working uh, alongside government because they are the main actor working alongside civil society. There's a lot of NGOs who've done good work in India. And if one can stand on their shoulders, work with them, you know, um, that there is a real chance to uh, drive change in other areas as well. And uh, look, I'm optimistic, but I, I don't want to sound unnecessarily ebullient in that it's, this is very hard work. But I'm, I do feel that there are many other areas, like so that whether it's air pollution, health, um, science and technology, where India needs to make a lot of progress in the next 20 years. And as I said, the main actors, there already is a lot of work happening and government obviously is the main actor. So we felt that, you know, through CSF, we've developed a blueprint, we've learned a lot. How do we now set up uh, new organizations working on different areas. The difference is that when I started CSF, I ran it. Eventually I transitioned out about four or five years ago. 
And now there's a leadership team that runs it. I only chair the board. So it freed up my time. And so my template now is going back to a little bit of my old training of being an investor is, you know, we can mobilize the capital. That's our role. We bring capital. We can define the problem in terms of doing some research, the landscape, figure out where's the institutional void. We can hopefully find an entrepreneurial leader to lead that organization and work with us. And hopefully if we have credibility, government will also want to work with us, you know, in those areas. So there's some synergies in terms of putting, and there isn't that much sort of startup capital to get these kinds of things going. It's not to start an NGO, it's to start new foundations. So my goal really through the Convergence Foundation, which is this new foundation I set up, which is really our money, is how can we much like CSF, set up other foundations working in key areas of development, economic growth, and, uh, but do it faster. You know, can we, what CSF has achieved in 10 years, could we have achieved that in five years? you know, going forward, because we've, we've obviously learned a lot from our past experiences and we have some of the blueprints. So I built a team now at the Convergence Foundation and we've already started a few initiatives. So there's an entity called APAG, which is a Air Pollution Action Group. And they've been working with the states of Punjab, UP, Bihar, uh, and uh, the Delhi Municipal Corporations on air pollution. Um, we started an organization called FAST, which works on science and tech policy. And they've been engaging with the principal scientific advisors office and also with some institutions, some of our science uh, institutions. We have a, a leader there, a CEO who drives it. We have another entity called CGIS, which a brilliant academic, Kartik Mulidharan, he's my co-founder with me. And we have a CEO, Vijay Pingle, who's a former IS officer who leads it. And the idea is to work with state governments on driving outcomes orientation uh, and improving data integrity, performance management. And we worked in Telangana, now Tamil Nadu, Assam. We've already worked in Delhi. So many new organizations, and we have two organizations that serve the sector. One called ILSS, Indian Leaders for the Social Sector, which builds capacity for the uh, social sector uh, itself. And a new one called Accelerate India Philanthropy, which will work on essentially getting philanthropists to give more, give sooner, give better. So we have new organizations uh, that we will keep setting up. Maybe a couple every year is the objective. And then you have like a portfolio. So much like a VC firm, you know, that portfolio, we work closely with them, with the entrepreneur to build, help them recruit, uh, help them, you know, define the right programs, uh, help them do the right research, you know, et cetera, build their teams. Uh, and really support them for the next 10 years. And we are we welcome other partners to join us, you know, in each of these things. Like in Central Square Foundation, eventually, Gates Foundation got excited about our work. They are a partner. Google became a partner for EdTech. We have uh, HDFC Bank, Indusin Bank, HD Pirate Foundation, so many others. Uh, Ravi Mehta, Avinash, individuals who have supported uh, CSF as well. So the idea with many of these also is not to do it alone but to do it in partnership with others, but very much a focus on, you know, looking at outcomes and trying to drive out outcomes while realizing that these are very complex problems. Government is a primary actor and our goal is to be long-term oriented. Uh, we're not going to drive change in one year. Uh, we should see small change or lead indicators start to change in three to five years. 
and eventually to change outcomes it may at scale it may take 10 to 15 ashish uh, one final question um, you know you work on foundational literacy, literacy along with the states you know at, at, at the class uh, level of 2 uh, and 3 and then uh, with your uh, uh, involvement with ashoka university you know it is at the other end of the spectrum where you know it is modeled on ivy league colleges they seem to be worlds apart Uh, so how did you manage that it is very different there's no doubt um but it's a question of you know we believe that this foundation literacy and numeracy is super important and there are different mo- modes also my belief is with foundation literacy and numeracy if you look at most countries that have improved so many of the former communist countries like vietnam or china actually focused on basic education before they prioritized higher education which is why they they have less inequity you know and 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 stronger basic skills right it's it's why vietnam i think is possibly more competitive than india right now in terms of an export hub being an export hub so i think in education this is necessary uh, frankly with the university we realize you can never get to scale because you're doing it on your own the hope there is that you know it's a new model and maybe others will copy that model of a more holistic and uh, interdisciplinary kind of education so it's worlds apart and very different theories of change mm-hmm. uh, but i think both are necessary you know india is a country where like 100 flowers can bloom frankly even in the university space we probably need 100 new universities and that's the size of our country or in so many other areas like you were pointing out earlier people need to do uh, good work so i I don't see it. I, I, again, I, I look at it as a portfolio. Maybe because I'm not an operating leader. How do I, I think my biggest strength is one is of course we have the capital to put in, but two is the entrepreneurial energy of the ideas, the, you know, the ability to pull things together and get things started and find good people um, and get them, you know, focused on outcomes and look at evidence, look at research. um have more of a partnership collaborative approach so bring that dna into these orgs from the outset and that's why we set up convergent foundation i said you know if i have to have a multiplier effect in my next 10 years then i must have an entity through which i can properly you know set up the next csf across 10 other domains right right ashish thanks a lot for joining us on business line podcast this week until we meet next time goodbye and god bless Thank you so much it was a pleasure speaking with you